we stopped at a clothing store. And you guys know when you're traveling to a destination how you hate to stop. But we stopped because I wanted to look at some things. And she found a pair of shorts that she wanted to buy. Me being the tight husband said, well, you know, we're going on vacation. We've got a lot of expenses. Let's don't get those right now. We can get those later. And she goes, I really want them. I like them. Let me, let me get the shorts. I said, no, nah, not right now. And finally she said this. She said, listen, on our vacation, when we go out to eat, I'll only get water to drink. And if you add that up over the vacation, then it'll pay for the shorts. How do you argue with that logic? So we got the shorts. And she got them. I forgot about it. We went on down to Florida. While we were down there, we decided to go to a nice steak restaurant to celebrate our anniversary. Uh, by the way, uh, this Tuesday is mine and Claire's 19th anniversary. Isn't that awesome? Praise the Lord for that. God is good. But we were down in Florida, and we said we can leave the kids with the grandparents, and we'll go out and celebrate our anniversary. So we went to a really nice steak restaurant. We were sitting there looking at the menus, and the waiter came out, and he said, Can I get you something to drink? And Claire looked at me and said, Can I get sweet tea? Now, I was so embarrassed because this waiter's thinking, what a barbarian. His wife has to beg him for tea at this restaurant. And I was so embarrassed. I said, of course she can get tea. And, and she got tea. Now, the, re the reason that conversation seemed so weird to the waiter is because he didn't understand the greater context. He didn't have benefit of the prior conversation about the shorts. So he's thinking when he hears Claire ask for tea that something's wrong with the husband, right? And did you know that sometimes some sections of Scripture can seem weird to us or irrelevant or even boring because we don't understand the greater context of God's Word. And we don't understand where it fits in God's Word. And I want to show you this morning that there are some amazing connections in God's Word that show us that it is unified and beautiful. And I want to show you that from our passage in Joshua chapter 14. So turn there with me. We're going to look at Joshua, end of Joshua 14, and all of Joshua 15 as we continue our study through this wonderful Old Testament book. Joshua chapter 14, verse 6. I want to ask you... This morning, if you are physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. Joshua 14, verse 6. And the people of Judah came to Joshua at Gilgal. And Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God in Kadesh Barnea, concerning you and me. Now fast forward down to chapter 15, verse 1. The allotment for the tribe of the people of Judah. And then look in verse 20. This is the inheritance of the tribe of the people of Judah, according to their clan. So we see Judah mentioned three times in this section of Scripture. Keep that in mind as we pray together this morning. Father in heaven, we come to you in Jesus' name, and we are so grateful, Lord, for this opportunity to sing praises to you, to declare.
declare your majesty, to say in song that we love you, to say in song, Lord, that we are amazed by you, and just to be able to, as a faith family, enjoy your presence. Lord, what a, what a privilege. Lord, as we look at your word, I pray that you would move in our hearts by your spirit, open the eyes of our hearts, give us understanding, and I pray, Lord, that, that our lives would be changed. Lord, that our lives would never be the same because we see Jesus so clearly today. Have your way in our midst. Touch our hearts. Change our lives. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. The book of Joshua has four different sections. We've kind of seen that unfold as we've worked our way through the book of Joshua. The first section is when God tells the people of Israel to cross the Jordan and go into the land. The second section is to conquer the land, to conquer the peoples living there in that land as God was giving that land to his people. The third section, which we are in this morning, is the section of Joshua where the Lord wants Israel to divide up the land among the different tribes of Israel. And and then the last section of Joshua, which we will see, in the coming days, is possess the land, live in the land, thrive in the land, serve me in the land. So we are looking at the section where God is is overseeing the land being divided up among the different tribes. And you're going to see a bunch of lists, a lot of information, a lot of place names, and you read a section like this and think, is this relevant to me? Has it got anything to say to me? This is kind of boring, kind of weird, I, I don't really get it. Well, maybe that's because... You're not making connections from a passage like this to the wider context of Scripture. And when you begin to do that, you begin to see some extraordinary insights. You begin to see Jesus Christ exalted in the pages of God's Word. So what I want to do is I want to share with you from our passage this morning three extraordinary insights. Three extraordinary insights. First of all, we see an extraordinary person, an extraordinary person. It mentions there Joshua and Caleb in verse 6 of chapter 14. It says, The people of Judah came to Joshua at Gilgal, and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God in Kadesh Barnea, concerning you and me. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought him word again as it was in my heart. But my brothers who went up with me made the the heart of the people melt. Yet I wholly followed the Lord my God. And Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot is trodden shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. Now this conversation may not make much sense if you don't understand what happened over in Numbers chapter 13 and 14. When Moses was still alive and he was leading the nation of Israel toward the promised land, he chose 12 men to go into the promised land and spy it out. Their goal was to see what was there and bring back a report to the people. And when the 12 uh, men returned, they said to Moses and to uh, the nation of Israel, uh, it's a beautiful land, just like the Lord said, is a, it is a land flowing with milk and honey. Look at these grapes. We have to carry them on a pole between two men. It is a fruitful land. It is a beautiful land. It would be a great place to live, but there are some fierce people living there. As a matter of fact, there are some giants 
And I don't believe that we have the wherewithal to defeat those giants. So we should not, 10 of the 12 men said, we should not go into the land. We'll be decimated. And their advice was in uh, direct disobedience to what God had said. God said, go in the land. I'll give you the land. I'll give you victory. Go in the land. They said, no, we dare not go. We will be defeated. Ten of the twelve said, we should not go. Two of the twelve said, we should go. We should obey God. The two men, Joshua and Caleb. And through Moses, the Lord said to Joshua and Caleb, I'm going to allow my people to wander in the wilderness for 40 years so this unbelieving generation dies off. But because you two were faithful, because you two believed me and wanted to obey me, I will give you an inheritance in the land. That's what Caleb's talking about when it comes to Joshua. Remember what the Lord said through Moses? Remember how God said he's going to give us land? And then he says to Joshua, I'm ready for my land. I'm ready to possess the land God has given me. And three times in this section of Scripture, we see that Caleb is called wholehearted. Look what it says in verse 8. He says, I, in, in contrast to the other spies, I wholly followed the Lord my God. Look in verse 9. He says, Surely the land on which your foot is trodden shall be an inheritance for you. This is Moses speaking, and your children forever, because you have wholly Followed the Lord my God. Look in verse 14. Therefore Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, to this day, because he wholly followed the Lord, the God of Israel. So three times in this section we're told that Caleb was a wholehearted follower of the Lord. He was a man of, of wholehearted devotion. You say, wait, what does wholehearted devotion look like? Well, we see this in the life. First of all, we see that he took God at his word. How do you know if you're wholehearted? Do you take God at his word? Look what it says uh, in verse 6. People of Judah came to Joshua at Gilgal, Caleb the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite said to him, you know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God. And he goes on to say, the reason I want to possess the land is because God told me he's going to give me the land. I'm just going to take God at his word. Word. That's why he wanted to go in the land in the first place when the ten spies gave a bad report. He wanted to obey God because he believed what God said. God said he'll give us the land. God will give us the ability to defeat the people living there. So because he takes God at his word, he says, I'm ready to take possession of the land God has given to me. What does wholehearted devotion look like? It looks like a, a firm bedrock conviction that what God says is true. And because what God says is true, you are willing to line up your life with the Word of God. That's what Caleb exemplified, and that's what wholehearted devotion looks like. Listen to me. You will never be a wholehearted follower of Christ if you don't take God at His Word. If you don't take the Word of God seriously, you'll never exemplify wholeheartedness. But there's another characteristic he was willing to be in the minority in order to be faithful to God. Now, again, to understand this, you need to go back to Numbers chapter 14. But in Numbers 14, when Joshua and Caleb say, God's giving us the land. We dare not live in disobedience to the Lord. Let's go into the land. He'll give us victory. The people are so scared of the giants in the land 
that they decide they want to kill Joshua and Caleb. They take up stones to stone them. Everyone except Moses and Joshua and Caleb were opposed to going into the land. And yet Caleb was willing to stand in the minority, in obedience to God. He was willing to be the minority if it meant he was going to be faithful to the Lord. That, that's what wholehearted devotion looks like. Willing to be in the minority if you are able uh, to be faithful to God. Dale Ralph Davis writes, The devotion of faith required courage, a willingness to stand alone to go against the grain. He says, The devotion of faith led to, listen, the isolation of faith. Such is often the case. In other words, when you decide you're going to follow the Lord wherever He leads, when you decide you're going to be wholehearted in following Christ, you will often find yourself in the minority. And when you find yourself in the minority, are you still willing to stay by the stuff? Are you still willing to obey the Lord? Even if it means you're ostracized by the majority. You might find this in your workplace, in your school, even in your family. You're the, the only one that is following Jesus and you're being ostracized and you're being mocked and maligned. Are you willing to stand for the Lord even if it means you're the only one doing it? Wholehearted people are willing to stand in the minority. Third, he was committed to finishing well. Look what it says in verse 10. Now behold, the Lord has kept me alive, just as he said, these 45 years since the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses, while Israel walked in the wilderness. And now behold, I am this day 85 years old. I'm still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. My strength now is as my strength was then for war and for going and coming. So now give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakim were there, the, the giants. With great fortified cities, it may be that the Lord will be with me, and I shall drive them out just as the Lord said. Caleb was committed to finishing well. Now, Caleb could have said, I've been fighting for decades. I've been faithful for, I'm 85 years old. So, Joshua, could you send some younger men to defeat the giants living there, and then when they're done, I'll go in and possess the land. Could have said that, right? It's, it's time for someone else to step up and get the job done. But Caleb doesn't say that. He says, I'm 85, and I'll go take the land. I'll drive out the giants. Now, remember, the giants were the reason that 10 of the 12 spies didn't want to go into the land. And he's saying, I'll go fight those giants and drive them out and possess that country. He was fitted to finishing well. I want you to understand that the measure of your faith is not just what your faith looks like right now. The measure of your faith will be what your faith looks like on your deathbed. Right? I mean, it's easy to, to serve Jesus for a day. To get excited at a worship service and say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do good on Monday. It, it's, it's simple to follow Jesus for a few days or a week or a month or even have a good year in your spiritual journey. But it takes wholehearted devotion to follow Jesus for decades. Right? And Caleb exemplifies that 
desire, that resolve to finish well. Next, what does wholehearted devotion look like? He left a legacy. Look what it says over in chapter 15. Caleb is mentioned again. Verse 13, according to the commandment of the Lord to Joshua, he gave to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, a portion among the people of Judah. Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron. Arba was the father of Anak. Caleb drove out from there the three sons of Anak, Shishai and Ahiman and Talmai, the descendants of Anak. He went up from there against the inhabitants of Debir. The name of Debir formerly was Kiriath Saphir. And Caleb said, whoever strikes Kiriath Saphir and captures it, to him I will give Aksaw, my daughter, his wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, the brother of Caleb, captured it, and he gave him Aksaw, his daughter, as wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she got off her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Give me a blessing, since you have given me the land of the Negev. Give me also springs of water. And he gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. Now listen to me. Why was Caleb able to bless his daughter and his family with land? Because he was obedient to go get the land. Come in real close. Caleb's obedience was a blessing to his children. And the greatest gift that you can give your kids and your grandkids is wholehearted faithfulness to Christ. Your obedience will pay dividends in this life, but also in the lives of your descendants. You're giving them a gift of legacy, a gift of of faithful devotion to Christ. They can see with their eyes and observe as you live that out. And so Caleb displays wholehearted devotion. He took God at his word. He was willing to be in the minority. He was committed to finishing well. He left a legacy. As I was thinking about Caleb, I began to think about a man named William Wilberforce. He was a Christian politician, the late... 1700s, early 1800s in Great Britain. And he was a man that stood against the slave trade that was taking place all throughout the British Empire. And he stood courageously and sometimes alone against the slave trade. And over time, as he took his stand and wanted to see slavery abolished, the tide began to turn. On the day before he died, William Wilberforce delivered a passionate speech about how slavery needed to be abolished. The next day he died. But a month later, a month after his death, the House of Lords passed the Slavery Abolition Act, abolishing slavery all throughout the British Empire. He was a man of God that was courageous and wholehearted and stood alone and finished well and left a legacy. He was not half-hearted in his devotion to the Lord. He was a whole-hearted follower of Christ. How about you? When people come up close and see your life, would they stand back and say, now that's wholeheartedness. That person is all in. They love Jesus. Would they say that about your life? Do you live out wholehearted devotion the way Caleb did. And so the first insight we see in this passage is an extraordinary person 
when we look at Caleb through the lens of the book of Numbers, the greater, wider context, we see how extraordinary his devotion to the Lord was. And we learn much from that. But secondly, we see in this text an extraordinary place. In chapter 15, there is a list of places that make up the boundaries for the tribe of Judah. God was giving them land. And he gives them very specific information about the boundaries that would form their section of land. And then in the latter half of chapter 15, there's some mention of cities and towns that were in that promised land. But in a couple places, there's a city mentioned that's interesting. Look what it says in 15 verse 8. Then the boundary goes up by the valley of the son of Hinnom at the southern shoulder of the Jebusite, that is, in parentheses, Jerusalem. Interesting that Jerusalem is mentioned here. And then fast forward all the way to the end of this chapter. It says in verse 63, But the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah, could not drive out, they could not drive out. So the Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. So when this was written, the people of Israel, the people of Judah, were in Jerusalem, but there were some Jebusites there as well because they did not drive them fully out. Now, why is Jerusalem mentioned twice in this section of Scripture? And you could just be reading this list and just pass right over that. But why is it kind of highlighted in the fact that Jebusites lived there mentioned in this chapter? Well, I believe that the mentions of Jerusalem foreshadowed the importance of this city in God's unfolding plan. This was a key city that God was going to use in miraculous ways to be the backdrop for the drama of redemption to unfold. And Jerusalem plays this central role in God's plan of redemption. That's why it's mentioned here. It's foreshadowing that this city would have importance in the coming pages of Scripture. So, wait, what makes Jerusalem such a, a special city? How is this city used as a backdrop for the drama of redemption? We'll consider this. And we're skipping over a lot of Old Testament information, but consider this. Forty days after his birth, Joseph and Mary brought baby Jesus to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. When a man named Simeon saw Jesus, he proclaimed, My eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared. It was in Jerusalem that Jesus was found in the temple as a 12-year-old boy talking theology with the religious scholars. When chastised by his parents, he said that he must be in his father's house. In that city, Jesus exemplified a a self-awareness that he was the son of God. It was in Jerusalem that Jesus attended the Feast of Booths. And on the last and greatest day of the feast, he stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. It was in Jerusalem on the Sunday of Passover week that Jesus rode on a donkey with the crowds shouting Hosanna and waving palm branches, thus fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9. Soon after that, when overlooking that city, Jesus cried out, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem! The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. 
It was in Jerusalem that Jesus shared the Last Supper with His disciples, predicting that one of them would betray Him. It was just outside Jerusalem that Jesus, in a garden called Gethsemane, prayed in great anguish, Not my will, but yours be done. And in that garden, he was betrayed by the kiss of a friend. After the betrayal, Jesus was taken into Jerusalem, where he was questioned, accused, and mocked, and beaten by the religious leaders. It was in Jerusalem that Jesus was handed over to Pilate, then to Herod, and then back to Pilate, where his fate would be decided. It was in Jerusalem that the crowds cried out to Pilate, Crucify him! It was in Jerusalem that Jesus was scourged. A crown of thorns was thrust upon his brow. And cruel men spat upon him. It was in Jerusalem that a heavy wooden crossbeam was placed on his back and he was forced to carry it to the place of crucifixion. And it was in Jerusalem that Simeon of Niger was pulled from the crowd to carry the cross that a weakened Jesus fell under the weight of. It was right outside the walls of Jerusalem that the temple, uh, that Jesus was nailed to the cross, hanging there from nine in the morning to three in the afternoon. It was in Herod's temple in Jerusalem that the temple veil was torn from top to bottom when Jesus breathed his last, signifying that because of his death for sinners, we can have access to God. It was at a garden tomb on the outskirts of Jerusalem that the disciples discovered the stone had been rolled away and that Jesus had risen from the grave. The Mount of Olives will figure prominently in the second coming. For the prophecy of Zechariah 14.4 reads, On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley. So in Jerusalem we see the life of Jesus, the suffering of Christ, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, The return of Jesus. But that's not it. That's not all. In Revelation 21, we are told that when the old heavens and old earth pass away, God will usher in a new heavens and a new earth. And the centerpiece will be the new Jerusalem. Coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. In in the vision that John saw, he heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. We will enjoy the presence of Christ forever in Jerusalem. So when you see this mentioned over in Joshua 15, it's meant to kind of pique our interest so that when we see it mentioned throughout the unfolding pages of the Old Testament and we see the work and ministry of Christ in Jerusalem, we know there's something about that city. It's an extraordinary place. 
In other words, the mention in Joshua 15 makes more sense when you understand the wider context of God's Word. A couple of years ago, you as a church sent Claire and me with a group from this church to Jerusalem, to Israel. We spent some time in Jerusalem. I'm just telling you, it's a special place. I remember we came into Jerusalem for the first time. It's about twilight, and our tour guide and the bus driver got us off the bus at a place overlooking the entire city, which was lit up. It was beautiful, and they participated in a little welcome ceremony, which was a tradition and a custom, and they welcomed us to Jerusalem. And there's something about that city. I mean, you're walking around, you're like, oh, oh, Garden of Gethsemane's right over there. And, oh, these are the steps of the, the Temple of Herod where Jesus actually taught. And, oh, this is where they had the Last Supper over here. And, and, and there's something about that place. Why? Because Jerusalem's a special city ordained by God to display His glory and grace and provide redemption for lost sinners like me and you. It's a special place. We get a little foreshadowing in Joshua 15 that we need to pay attention to that name, that city, Jerusalem. So we see back in Joshua 15 uh, an extraordinary person, an extraordinary place, but third and last, I want you to see with me an extraordinary purpose. Notice what it says in chapter 15, verse 1. The allotment for the tribe of the people of, what's it say? Judah. Then again in verse 20. This is the inheritance of the tribe of the people of Judah, according to their plan. So this entire section, a chapter and a half, is about the land that was to be given to the people in the tribe of Judah. Now this is extraordinary, especially when you compare it to the mention of other tribes getting their land. For example, fast forward with me to Joshua 19, just very quickly. Joshua 19. Notice that the description of Simeon, that tribe getting their land, is found in verses 1 through 9. Then Zebulun's mentioned in verses 10 through 16. Issachar in verses 17 through 23. Asher in 24 through 31, and so on and so forth. But notice... These other tribes get about a paragraph, right? Why in the world does Judah get a chapter and a half? I mean, what's the big deal about Judah? Good question to ask as you're reading through the page of Scripture. And again, it doesn't make sense if you don't understand how Judah is described in other places in God's Word. Here's what the ESV Study Bible says about Judah being mentioned in chapter 15. As the western allocation of land begins, pride of place goes to the important tribe of Judah. David Jackman writes, Judah comes first in the order primarily because of the special blessings conferred on it by Jacob. So there's something important about this tribe. They get a chapter and a half. And they're important because of a blessing given to Judah by Jacob. Now, what's that all about? Well, hold your place and turn with me. Genesis Chapter 49, I want you to see this blessing that Jacob prays upon his son and his descendants who would become the tribe of Judah. Look in Genesis chapter 49 with me. Genesis 49, verse 8. 
Jacob, the patriarch, is blessing his sons, his 12 sons, who would become the 12 tribes of Israel. And in verse 8, look what he says to Judah. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. In other words, you'll have priority over your brothers. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion. And as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter, an implement of royalty. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. Here's what Jacob prays as a blessing over his son Judah and his descendants. Judah, you're going to rule and reign. You have priority over the other tribes of Israel. And and there's going to come a time when the peoples on the face of the earth will come and pay tribute to you. Now, how in the world was this promise, this prophecy, this blessing, patriarchal blessing, fulfilled in the tribe of Judah? It doesn't make sense. We'll begin to see its fulfillment in... 1 Samuel, when the first king of Israel is faithless and disobeys God. So the Lord finds another man to be king, another man to replace Saul, who's from the tribe of Benjamin. And this man he finds is a man after his own heart from the family of Jesse in the tribe of Judah. So from that point on, there's a representative from Judah reigning over God's people. Even when it was split in two kingdoms, there's the the tribe of Judah, the the, the nation of Judah, and a a king from Judah ruling and reigning. So someone might say, well, this promise in Genesis 49 is talking about David, right? The king. Well, no, David died. He's in a grave. His son Solomon died. He's in a grave. Who's reigning now? Which descendant of David, which descendant of Judah is reigning now? Over in 2 Samuel chapter 7, the Lord says to David, I'm going to give you a descendant. And this descendant will reign eternally. Someone's coming through your lineage, David, that will reign forever and ever and ever and ever. Again, can't be David, can't be Solomon. Who is it? When Hebrews chapter 1, verses 5 through 8, that 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 covenant that God made with David is repeated and it's 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 applied to Jesus Christ. Jesus was the one who came through the lineage of David, through the, the tribe of Judah, who will rule and reign forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Jesus Christ came as a redeemer to die for our sins, and Jesus Christ came as a king to rule the world, right? So that promise to David is fulfilled through Christ. That blessing in Genesis 49 is fulfilled through Christ. Judah was the tribe of Israel through whom God would send the Messiah, the Savior King. So we see here that Judah has great significance. That's why it's so important that we understand in The Gospels, when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, the people are crying out, Hosanna to the Son of David. That's a messianic title. They're recognizing that Jesus is the one sent by God. 
to rule and reign through the lineage of David, through the tribe of Judah. And so Judah is given priority in Joshua because of their extraordinary purpose. The Messiah would come through them. And we put this information together with other information, we begin to get a crystal clear picture of why Jesus is the only one who can be the Messiah. Now, to illustrate this, I I want us to spend a few moments discovering who the oldest person from Mississippi is in this room. Is that okay? Can we do that? So if you're physically able, just stand up with me. Everybody stand up. If you're not physically able, just raise your hand up. All right. If you are not originally from Mississippi, if you weren't born in Mississippi, sit down. All right. They took out some folks, right? I saw someone saying, where was I born? What was it? All right, now, if everybody standing was born in Mississippi. Now, if you are under 50, sit down. All right? If you're under 60, sit down. Some of you are going, oh, no. What have I gotten myself into? If you're under 60, sit down. Okay, if you are under 70, sit down. All right, it's getting real in here. It's getting real. All right? you're under 75, sit down. All right, three left. If you're under 78, sit down. If you're under 80, sit down. If you're under 83, sit down. And we got one left. Miss Mary Dale, you last one hour. Let's give her a hand, Ms. Mary Dale. Yeah. Good job. All right. Now, here's what we discovered through process of elimination. We discover who the oldest person in the room is from Mississippi. That makes sense? Now, how do we know who the Messiah really is? There's debate right now. Is Jesus really the Messiah? There's some that don't believe he is. How do we know who the real Messiah is? Well, we could use process of elimination, couldn't we? We could do something like this. We could say, okay, everyone from Israel, stand up. And then we could say, If you're not from the tribe of Judah, sit down. That would eliminate a lot of folks, right? And then we can narrow it down further and we say, well, if you're not from the lineage of David, sit down. Well, there's still be a lot of people standing, a lot of folks from Judah in David's line. How do we know which of those is the true Messiah? Well, the Bible gives us some some more information in the Old Testament to help us understand who the Messiah truly is. For example, we could say, if you weren't born in Bethlehem, sit down. Because Micah 5 says the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And that would eliminate some folks. And there'd still be a lot of folks standing. So we could say this. If you were born, if you you were not born of a virgin, sit down. Because Isaiah 7, 14 says the Messiah would be born of a virgin. And that would leave one standing. And not only that, there's a lot more information. We could say, if you weren't pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, like Isaiah 53 says, sit down. If guards didn't gamble for your clothes while you were hanging on the cross, like it says in Psalm 22, sit down. And we could give all of these, these qualifications for the Messiah. And we shared them all. Listen to me. 
there would only be one left standing. And his name is Jesus of Nazareth. And so, as we study God's word, we see Judah, and we begin to look at other verses in the greater context, we begin to understand what's so important about Judah. The tribe through whom God would send the Messiah. Maybe that's why it says over in Revelation 5, 5, that Jesus is, I love this, he is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the one God sent through those people, through that tribe, to be the redeemer and to be the ruler forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. So you see what we're doing here? We're looking at Joshua 14 and 15, a lot of place names, lists. We think, that's a weird chapter. Does it apply to, is there anything important there I need to focus in on? Well, when you read it in the context of all of God's Word, you begin to see connections. You begin to see how it all fits together. You begin to understand the importance of people like Caleb and places like Jerusalem and a tribe like Judah, because all of it, all of it, all of it points to Jesus Christ, who is our only hope. Don't miss it, dear friends. Jesus came through Judah, through the lineage of David, born of a virgin, died on the cross, rose from the dead, because he came to die for your sins. Because of all of this, you can have hope, you can have salvation, you can have eternal life. It's not just history. This is our redemption on the line. So here's what I want you to walk away with today. When we read the Bible while keeping the rest of the Bible in mind. And by the way, we're just scratching the surface. There's so much more I could say. We're just scratching the surface. When we read the Bible while keeping the rest of the Bible in mind, we will be amazed by the unity and beauty of Scripture. If Listen to me. If your Bible reading is boring... If it seems like it's not relevant, you're, you're missing the unity of Scripture. You're not making some connections. So ask God to work in your heart and help you to see those connections and, and see the, the glory of Christ in the pages of the Bible so that you will love the Word of God more. And by loving the Word of God more, you will love the God of the Word more. Ask God to do that work in your heart. So conversations, passage of Scripture, make a lot more sense when you understand the context. Amen? Can you bow your head and close your eyes?